All right. Hello and welcome to the Hacker Noon podcast. Uh, today we have a little bit of a different uh, guest for us today. He is a Washington Post reporter, specifically on the NBA. And uh, I listen to his podcasts, uh, mainly Open Four Globe. Then he also started his own podcast, The Greatest of All Talk. Um, with all sports being shut down right now, we're in kind of an interesting spot where the sports are going to be forced forward by technology and you kind of see a hustle of everyone trying to get the TV rights and the revenue from all their different TV digital deals. Um, so today we're going to dig in to uh, how this pandemic has affected the NBA, what, how the NBA is adapting with its own technology choices and its own business, business choices. So without further, further ado, today's guest is Ben Gulliver of the Washington Post. How are you, Ben? I'm doing very well, taking it day by day, like I'm sure you are and all your listeners are. I hope your your family's safe and well, and uh, I'm excited to jump in. Cool. So you're already uh, kind of a digital guy living in L.A. and working for the Washington Post, aren't you? Correct. I, I work from home. I've always been doing that pretty much my entire basketball writing career for you know the last 12 or 13 years. I've never actually had to go into a newsroom. Um, every once in a while, I get a little jealous of the writers who do, but I think on balance, uh, it's better for reporters to kind of be out, you know, and, and around the stories. And it just so happens that LA is kind of the center of the basketball universe right now. So uh, that, that makes my life pretty convenient. Um, but, you know, compared to say, you know, writers who had my job 20 or 30 years ago, um, I would say that the digital focus has been huge throughout my, my time period. I mean, Twitter coming along right when I was first starting was a huge boost. You know, if you were good on Twitter, it was a great way to to advance your career to get noticed by uh, potential editors. And then I think uh, with the rise of aggregation and, and news services that basically were no longer interested in reporting their own news, but simply sort of regurgitating or, or culling together news into a, either a central website uh, or to their own social media platforms. I mean, that wound up being kind of a game changer for the whole industry. And it, it forced a lot of newspapers to get better digitally. Uh, it led to the rise of new companies uh, like Bleacher Report, of course. And so uh, I think it's been a, an interesting dynamic shift here over the last 10 years. And it's something that we're always just trying to stay on top of as reporters. So what was your first uh, sports reporting job? You know, I was actually moonlighting as a, a blogger uh, for a Portland Trailblazers site for SB Nation called Blazers Edge. I had a day job. I was doing like e-commerce and marketing for a small business uh, outside of Portland, Oregon. I had been born and raised in Portland and was always interested in the Trailblazers because they're kind of the only show in town. And I thought, you know, huh, this could be fun to just kind of like write my opinions about the NBA and, and maybe, you know, just do it to scratch a basketball itch. Um, the, the big thing for me was trying to use uh, that platform as a way to get access, you know, in other words, to get credential, to go to the games, to cover it like a quote unquote real reporter. I had never had any real journalism background uh, prior to, to writing. But I felt like that was the best way for me to sort of make my mark and maybe launch my career. Uh, so I was able to get credential to cover the Blazers games off the strength of that blog's readership. I mean, it, it had a very big presence locally. Lots of people read it. Uh, and we were able to kind of just build it up from there. So I would start, you know, covering training camp and practices and, uh, you know, tweet out the, the updates and, and do those kinds of things. And, you know, slowly but surely, I kind of built it into a career going to CBS Sports and Sports Illustrated and, uh, eventually to the Washington Post. And I remember the, the early days of Hacker Noon as my site was gaining traction. 
it was like getting free tickets to events and concerts. And it was like, oh yeah, let me prove to people that like we can get access. Like there is something like the access kind of rises with the, with the job title. Um, but also just like, it's proof that people actually read the site, you know, cause it, it's been hard for uh, blogs to like legitimize, you know, and uh, seeing someone like you start with their own blog and end up at the Washington post is a, is a pretty cool path that I think a lot of people can follow. For sure. And I think, uh, you know, for us, uh, we knew that they, we had the audience and we knew that the team valued the audience because, you know, sometimes they would even potentially be like, you know, trying to get us to, you know, tweet out ticket specials and stuff like that. I mean, there was sort of like a symbiotic relationship there uh, before, you know, I got there. And so for me, it was kind of this idea of like, all right, well, uh, you know, how could we, you know, maximize our position within the community, having tens of thousands of regular readers and and later on, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of regular people visiting the site, you know, how could we maximize that experience for the fans? And so that wound up, you know, being a lot of, uh, you know, exclusive interviews. I mean, all the kinds of things that newspapers would try to do. Uh, we didn't reinvent the wheel, uh, but it was a matter of, you know, interviewing executives, you know, being able to talk to players one-on-one, doing in-depth profiles, pushing the envelope with podcasts before podcasts were really a big thing. You know, one of the first things that I did that, that no one was really doing at the time I would go to the games with the camera and just like take photographs of the player's sneakers because a lot of times they would have uh, unique sneaker designs that nobody else had. And just posting those pictures on the internet, this is before Instagram, you know, we got such a huge reaction from fans who just wanted to see their favorite guys, new sneakers and what color they were wearing that night. Uh, You know, little things like that, you know, wound up laying the groundwork, I think for uh, ESPN now, like PJ Tucker's sneakers are getting like more mentions than PJ Tucker. Oh, absolutely. And PJ Tucker is making, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars off the fact that he loves sneakers because he's getting these brand deals uh, as opposed to even just, uh, you know, getting money for wearing the sneakers in the first place. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a real boom uh, over the last 10 years for that specifically. But you know, it was just the idea of trying to bring a new perspective to things. And, uh, you know, I think ultimately, like you're able to kind of, you know, rise from position to position. You know, it's not like a magic formula. It's just kind of hard work. And uh, and dedication to the craft. Could you uh, walk me through base, your basic tech stack now and the, the cycle you go for writing, publishing, distributing, and just interacting with your colleagues? Yeah. So, I mean, life is just nonstop. I mean, I'll say that it's like basically year round for the NBA. Now, uh, part of the, the deal with the NBA is the off season has become the season. You know, people care about free agency. They care about, uh, you know, player movement and rumors almost as much as they care about the actual games. So in terms of like looking at a calendar with the exception of August and then maybe like a week or two in September, we're basically working year round. Now, um, you know, I, I host four podcasts a week. Uh, I write at least two columns and usually, you know, at least two stories on top of that per week. So every day is, is kind of a grind. I mean, it, it really doesn't stop. I don't ever view, you know, a certain day as my day off or anything like that. It's pretty much just an all encompassing lifestyle. Now that's how I prefer it. Like I'd rather just be immersed in my subject material and keep it going in terms of communicating with like uh, my editors. And that's like a once a week type thing. We check in, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're texting and slacking on a regular basis, but sort of big picture thinking we're taking a step back once a week to do that. Right? In terms of working with my colleagues, I'm a little bit of a lone ranger. I prefer not to do the team up stories. I think it helps that I live you know, 3000 miles away from most of my colleagues so that I don't get uh, pulled into those kinds of stories as often. Um, because, you know, it's, it's just more time intensive and you're going back and forth with editors and reviewing and all that. Um, that's not my, my favorite thing to do. I am a little bit more of a lone wolf. Um, but I, I tend to write, uh, 
as news hits. So if something happens on Twitter as we're talking, you know, as soon as I get off this call, that it could be a situation where I have to, you know, write it immediately. Um, but in general, uh, I like to write at night when it's a little bit quieter, especially during the season. I like to write after games. Uh, you know, I do have print deadlines, especially during the playoffs. We're writing off a big game. So I'm filing certain stories that, you know, by, like, say, uh, you know, 9 p.m. Eastern to make sure that it can get into the newspaper. Uh, but I would say roughly 80% of my written content is for digital only. Um, at this point, I think I've got a pretty well-honed uh, feel for what moves the needle online in terms of columns and commentary and story topics. Um, you know, it's, it's more based off experience than anything else. Um, so, you know, those are going out regularly and, and being promoted on my Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, and then also, of course, on the company's accounts. Um, you know, I'm kind of over Twitter personally, and I don't want to turn this into like a bag on Twitter session because everybody loves to do that. But for me, I think that the real engagement with both my podcast listeners and my readers is on Instagram now. Hmm. So I use Instagram stories very heavily. I get lots of feedback there. I plug uh, my accounts pretty relentlessly on my podcast to sort of appeal to the diehards. And then I think that's, uh, you know, sort of how I do it. At the same time, you know, NBA, it, the, the media community is still very much Twitter focused. Um, you know, lots of sharing goes on on, on Twitter, uh, retweeting and, you know, kind of you know, patting other colleagues on the back. I mean, that, that's still the, the main it, avenue for it's that. It's easy to get great quotes from Twitter. You know, the whole thing is designed to get a good quote and then that quote can be reused anywhere so easily. And where Instagram really wants to keep the traffic within the ecosystem. Absolutely. It's totally true. And so, for example, if I'm live covering an event, that coverage will always go to Twitter first. You know, if like if LeBron says something like, uh, you know, his controversial statements about China, where he's, you know, practically siding with China over the United States on the Hong Kong issue. And I was right there front and center with the video of that. I will tweet that out first because that's guaranteed to get, you know, five million views once it gets aggregated. And it's going to put my name everywhere and it's, you know, it's going to Do you, um, ever have athletes like you take the video and then they're just like, hold up, uh, don't please don't post that. Um, I have never personally experienced it. Now, every once in a while, you'll do a sit down interview and then a guy will just stop like mid answer and be like, sorry, this is off the record. And so you, you obviously in that yeah. situation, you kind of have to honor it. And or, you, you know, you make your own judgment call if you think it's a, a fair situation uh, journalistically. But um, there's absolutely situations where guys will say stuff and five minutes later, they'll regret it. But, you know, as everyone knows, uh, yep. you know, it's already, already too late at that point. Um, in the case of LeBron that I mentioned, he actually tweeted out very quickly walking back what he had said after that video went viral, um, you know, within like 15 minutes, which is very unusual for him. So, uh, you know, athletes have to be aware of, of what's happening in real time on social media, just like the rest of us. I mean, I, I think in that case, it's just he got a little – to hurt about his money, you know, because everything losing all that China rights to him, you know, is going to be just so much money, and the NBA's access in China is so deep. And who would have thought, you know, nine months ago, NBA in China is just like connected so heavily now. Uh, but let's uh, let's move into some more business of the NBA stuff. Uh, this week, you know, Kawhi Leonard uh, lost his lawsuit for his claw logo. Um, and a short background there, he invented a logo in college uh, when working with Nike. They changed the logo significantly. He moved on to New Balance, and now he wants to keep using his logo, and the court is siding with Nike. So what do you think this means for Kawhi Leonard and his claw logo? 
Well, I think, first of all, um, the Nike logo, if you compare them side by side, I mean, there's similar elements in the idea that the base of the logo is his hand. And he's very well known for having gigantic hands. It's sort of his signature as an athlete. So it, it makes sense logically that his logo would be based off of his hand. But there's a lot of details in the Nike logo that, that Leonard's just didn't have. And so I understand why the, the lawsuit sort of went in their favor. There, this is just a really good example of players not fully understanding the power of their own branding at an early age. And I think some guys get it. Like, you know, hanging around like LeBron James's son, who's a high school player right now. I mean, this guy has already got millions of followers on Instagram. He's already his own brand. You know, his name is uh, LeBron Jr., but he calls himself Bronny. And that Bronny brand has already formulated. And he's like 15, 16 years old, right? But with Kawhi Leonard, he's a very, very shy player. He, you know, shunned the media, didn't really have any endorsement deals earlier in his career. Then he blows up and really has a strong, you know, championship season in Toronto. And it's almost like he and his advisors were playing catch up in a way. It was like, okay, now we actually care about branding. Now we know we can like make this into a profitable thing. And so they just didn't have their ducks in a row, right? Like when you're making those deals on it, with Nike. One of the early quotes he has, he's like trying to give Nike credit for making the design good, which you think is a good thing to like reward your team and say, you know, the designers did their job and had this logo evolved. And then when you leave Nike, Nike's taking those words, throwing them right back in your face and saying, we're the designers. Right. And there was frustration from Nike people that he didn't care enough about trying to sell sneakers when he was at Nike. Cause like he would, you know, he didn't really want to do commercials. A lot of his commercials, he wouldn't even talk in the commercials. And so it was, a, it was like pulling teeth from him. Right. But you know, your, your, your stock rises as a player, you become this big, uh, you know, famous icon, you win a title, you win a finals MVP award and the story changes and you know, you want, and then he decides to go to new balance because they're going to give him a gigantic contract that Nike really wasn't interested in giving him. And then at that point, you know, he, like I said, he didn't have his ducks in a row. So he wasn't even thinking, oh, can I keep this logo that I love when I go over to New Balance? Now, if in the very beginning he had negotiated with Nike and said, hey, I want to own this particular brand mark. If I ever leave, I get to keep it. That's certainly something that he would have been able to do. They just didn't do it in the right order. So I think it showed a little bit of uh, naivety by them uh, originally, but also it just reflects his career. He's a classic late bloomer. And, you know, I think ultimately it's not going to damage him too much. Uh, New Balance has actually had some really creative advertisements around uh, Kawhi Leonard. They've had some really good commercials pitting him almost against LeBron James, who's Nike's signature athlete, and and trying to say that, you know, Kawhi is now the king of L.A. because he plays for the Clippers and LeBron plays for the Lakers. And so they're getting some momentum. I mean, this is a, a brand that had no visibility whatsoever in the NBA space, and they've done it by a pretty successful partnership with Kawhi. But I think he's going to have to leave that, that logo and, and that brand mark in the past. Well, so I love the, what the steps the Clippers have made in terms of putting their logo on all the public courts and buying, you know, millions of dollars worth of book bags for kids in L.A. and just trying to make a 10 or 20 or 30 year, you know, branding play, which you have to be, you know, very confident in your money to, to think like that. So um, I think that was really smart. Did it, I actually think he's not going to leave it behind. I think we're just in a spot where we have a multi-million or, you know, like a million or $2 million asset here. It's worth nothing to Nike because they don't want to market Kawhi and it's worth some amount to New Balance to bring it over. So I I think we're actually going to hear a settlement announced and it's just going to mean Kawhi Leonard's contract is a little more expensive than New Balance originally thought. 
Well, the only tricky part uh, from that standpoint, and I, I like where you're going with that, is that there is the principal factor of this idea that if you leave Nike, first of all, Nike wants you to be a Nike athlete for life. You know, they yep. want to dictate the terms there. Yep. And they have always been ruthless towards their competitors within the sneaker industry. I mean, remember their unofficial motto was kill Reebok when their official motto was <laughs> just do it, right? So, I mean, that's how these guys have very sharp elbows. And, you know, Kawhi was a, a pretty big deal for them. So um, in, in that standpoint, they may just think that the actual benefit to Nike is to hold it hostage as a message to any future players who say, oh, I want to bring my logo with me in the future. Yeah, now that we talk it out, and I know you're from Oregon, um, I think you're right. Uh, I think, like, the pragmatic manager at Nike is like, hey, we can get an extra million here from New Balance, and the leadership is like, screw New Balance forever. So that, that right. makes a lot of sense to me. Well, these wars are great, though, man. Like, remember the whole back and forth over Steph Curry with Under Armour, too, right? Where it's like Under Armour is like, they kind of poached Steph Curry away from Nike because uh, Nike hadn't really made him one of their high profile players. And now Under Armour has this unprecedented like three or four year run of good sales thanks to Steph Curry. And uh, the feelings really got personal and hostile there too. So, um, you know, it's just one of those situations in business, like just because you're, you're number one today, you know, the, the winds can change pretty quickly. And I think that's why you see such aggressive defensive postures from a, a company like Nike. I mean, I'm sure it's comparable to an Apple or to some of these other industry leaders in the tech industry where it's like, you know, to maintain that top spot is almost harder than getting there in the first place. Yeah. You definitely have to be pretty ruthless at the top. Cause like you think you can just give up a little market share, but a little becomes a lot. And it's, uh, I mean, I, I guess this brings us to an interesting question about the big move. Um, the NBA made this month and their technology stack. So the NBA uh, announced a partnership with Microsoft and basically they're moving all of their content hosted digitally. It'll now be powered by Microsoft instead of having Comcast servers as the middleman. So did you uh, follow this deal and uh, what, uh, what else have you learned about it? Well, what I'd say in general is it's part of a broader strategy uh, from the NBA league office, which is look, they are, have been relying upon cable providers and, uh, you know, the cord cutting stuff is just getting out of control, right? Everybody realizes how fast that's going. And so the NBA thinks like, look, if we're going to be able to connect with the next generation of sports fans, we have to have a seamless experience digitally. We can't worry about the cable partners. And so much of their revenue right now comes from the digital rights deals and the media rights deals from ESPN, Turner, and everything else. And a lot of that money is being, you know, baked in from the deals with the cable, cable providers as well. And so they're seeing a future where like their cash cow is significantly compromised if everyone continues to drop cable at the rates they have been. And if you look at this coronavirus crisis, I mean, I think for anyone who's, you know, either be losing their job or unemployed, I mean, one of the first things to go in that situation is going to be your cable bill, right? And, and the real question is like, are you ever going to bring it back? And so I think this, this current shutdown could wind up just accelerating some of these trends the NBA was already dealing with. So their job or their hope is to have the most seamless, most far-reaching, global, and then most importantly, personalized digital experience for every fan everywhere, right? So rather than getting the one-size-fits-all TV broadcast, and maybe that's just going to be shown on your app or on League Pass, what they actually are envisioning down the road is the user being able to either watch on his phone, watch on his tablet, watch on his television, watch on his VR headset, you know, almost any mode of experiencing the game that you want. 
while listening to, rather than just the TNT or ESPN crew, uh, you know, being able to be in this sort of immersive environment where you get to pick your audio feed. So it could be that you listen to it in a different language. It could be that you listen to the home crowd announcer on the radio and or the, the road crowd announcer on the radio. So you can kind of get a more personalized experience. Or it could be that you're actually getting to hear two of your favorite podcasters do a live broadcast of the game in your ears as you're watching the game um, on your tablet, you know, kind of synced up you'll, you'll be in doing, real time. You'll be doing that soon enough, right? I mean, it's a once because you're close enough that like the Washington Post could be kind of one of the early partners, you know, in the sense of being a larger media organization. And like, there's no reason like everyone wants to listen to Jeff Van Gundy. You know, I mean, he's, he's good at his job, but like having opening it up to many different people announcing games is um, a pretty exciting personalization option. Right. And what you're seeing right now is there's individual companies who are sort of experimenting with this. So like there's former players who are almost doing like live broadcasts or live podcasts during games where they're sort of talking about the action, but they're also just kind of telling stories and letting their own fans kind of uh, behind the scenes. And it's working for people. This is going to be a more standardized version of that, right? Where like the NBA is saying like, hey, here's your like 20 different audio channels that you can choose from, personalize your experience. And on top of that, what they really want to get to is personalizing the camera angles too, right? So you don't have to stick with the traditional uh, viewpoint. If you want to mimic that courtside experience with a VR headset, you could actually sit like where Jack Nicholson is sitting, you know, for example. And now so you can look. I haven't over, you tried can... the VR yet, but the one on League Pass where they do like 20 cameras is like pretty overwhelming. Um, yeah, but... it's a lot. And they're, I mean, to be honest, when I did it, I was like, this was cool once, but it would probably give me a headache if I did it constantly, right? But I could understand why there's like a 14-year-old kid out there who says, this is incredible. Like, it's, it's almost more like a video game. I'm sitting courtside watching yeah. LeBron dunk. I'm listening to my friend provide the audio, you know, talking about the game. And this is just a, a, a better experience than sitting on my couch watching TV, listening to Jeff Van Gundy. I, I could see why taste would, would uh, factor in there majorly. I mean, the, if the playoffs do come back this year, the camera angle stuff is going to be a clear opportunity for, for them to provide a better piece of content without, like, because it's going to be, it's going to hurt the content and the experience so much without having fans there that, like, there's, it's going to create this incentive for them to really elevate the camera angles. Like, I could really, what I'm hoping for is that whenever the games happen, I can hear in the huddle. And I can hear what LeBron's telling his teammates. I can hear what they want Zion to do, assuming he makes the playoffs. Like, that's where, like, if there are no fans and you can just open up to audio uh, mics and cameras anywhere, I'm hopeful they take this as an opportunity to give us, you know, more of that insider experience. Oh, for sure. And I know a lot of people, they want to hear the sneaker squeaks, right, or the trash yeah. talk, right? Like, yeah. and or like the ball bouncing off the backboard or bouncing off the rim. And so there's a lot of like traditional purists who are saying like, I don't even need to hear someone talking, just like give me the ambient effect. And I think that, you know, they're, they're going for that too. But the big picture goal here is that you could have whatever you wanted. I could have whatever I wanted. The other fan could have whatever he wanted and it would be fully customized. And so that's what they're really trying to get to. And they feel like Microsoft is, is going to be the kind of company that has the power to help them uh, accomplish that because I think what their concern is, especially with the attention span aspect, is like, you know, it's so easy to just watch um, highlight clips on Twitter. You know, to see the best 20 seconds of an NBA game on Twitter is free. It's so simple. You can do it immediately. To watch the best five-second clip of a post-game interview, 
that I, I might post with my camera phone and then, you know, it goes viral. It's so easy to find that content. The problem is it's very difficult to monetize those small slices, right? I mean, to really be able to capture advertisers and to keep your media rights deal value high, you've got to really be uh, holding people's attention for as long as possible. And so and in that of, case, the one who's holding people's attention is the Twitter is the Instagram and they're gaining the advertising value because the micro clips are on their platforms. Right, exactly. And so the NBA is saying, well, how can we, first of all, how can we maximize our presence on those platforms? So we're always on people's minds, right? That's part yeah. of it. But then the other part of it is how do we hold their attention with our original content? Right. And, and the best way to do that is to make it as immersive as you possibly can. And, and to make it as customized as you can. So that's the NBA's strategy. But look, this is a real like crisis moment for them. I mean, they, their TV ratings were already down this year. Um, and I say crisis in the idea of like a midlife crisis, you know, where you just have to kind of like shift your priorities as opposed to like, you know, they're, they're going to be losing all this money guaranteed. Like it's, it's salvageable, but it's going to require some major fundamental changes to their business model. Um, so as we look at the, the leadership around the NBA, you're kind of in a rare spot where you know these guys, you know, they're your sources. Um, you've seen front office executives succeed and you've seen them, you know, blow up in flames. And so as you look across, not the ownership, but in who the leaders of the company are, like the actual, you know, general managers, presidents, um, what skill sets do you see across these people that make them good at their job? Well, this is a fascinating one because it's evolved here even over the last five years. I would say in general, the best decision makers have very clear principles in terms of what they prioritize and that they understand the basics from a business standpoint too, like stuff like alignment, right? The owner, the president, the GM, the coach, and the best player have to be on the same page, right? And the best general managers understand that. And if there's some sort of a irreconcilable difference between one of those relationships where just the owner hates the president or the coach can't stand the player. Uh, I think the best decision makers act proactively in those situations and either bring everybody into alignment or, or get rid of, uh, rid of the weakest link. Um, so I think that's number one is having clear philosophical opinions on how you want to play the game on which type of players you're targeting, having uh, you know, a coach that's able to execute your vision uh, those that that's number one. But I also think number two, and this has been a more recent development, you've got to have a flexibility in terms of how you approach things, right? You, you can't just be so stuck in your ways or stuck on your philosophies that you can't, um, that you limit opportunities for your organization. And a big reason why flexibility is so important right now is that the superstar level players have become really empowered over the last decade. They're the ones who are practically calling the shots at, at certain points. They're the ones who are even engineering and thinking up of trade scenarios so that they can team up with their friends or team up with their co-stars. And as an executive, if you had this old school mentality of, oh, you know, we're not going to let a player drive our team or, you know, we're a top down organization. We're not going to cater to superstars. Players need to know their role, quote unquote. Uh, you're going to get left behind. There's no question about it. I mean, the best organizations right now are quote unquote player friendly organizations. The Lakers, help to get LeBron James, Anthony Davis by trading away a lot of young pieces. The Houston Rockets trade Chris Paul for Russell Westbrook because James Harden just doesn't like Chris Paul anymore. The Clippers uh, traded, you know, years worth of assets to make sure they can get Paul George to pair him with Kawhi Leonard and make Kawhi Leonard happy. If you want to compete for a title, ultimately you have to sort of have everything revolving around uh, the hardest asset to get, which is a superstar level talent. And so, you know, that's been a real adjustment and it's been um, 
you know, it's been you did, you did watch the, the last dance this weekend. And then there's this moment. I, I'm, I'm guessing you did like the rest of the basketball universe where it's Jordan, Phil Jackson and Rodman all discussing Rodman's plan for a midseason vacation. You know, so like I know it's uh, the player empowerment is obviously, you know, at its peak now. And, you know, players back then, only, there was only one Michael Jordan, you know, to have that level of power. But and then you see how it blew up, you know, with the Bulls and they should have had more seasons. Uh, I guess I'm just saying it was it was interesting to see this weekend that Michael Jordan's a part of when Dennis Rodman's allowed to take midseason vacation decisions. Absolutely. And I would say that that Rodman situation was like a complete exception at the time. That was not the norm at all. And I think a great takeaway from the Jordan experience is that Jordan hated their general manager, Jerry Krause. Scottie Pippen, the second best player, hated the general manager, Jerry yep. Krause. And the coach, Phil Jackson, hated the general manager, Jerry Krause. And yet he was able to maintain power and actually wound up blowing up the whole team because he had ownership, strong backing and support. If such a similar dynamic happened today where LeBron hated the GM, Anthony Davis hated the GM, and the coach hated the GM, that GM would be fired instantly. He would be the one gone and because the power but center that has GM just shifted. is an agent, you know? Like, it's yeah. literally now an agent does that job. Right, or, yeah, and you could say that, like, you know, who really orchestrated the Lakers, you know, team coming together? You could say it's uh, Rich Paul. Yeah, Rich you know, LeBron, yeah. LeBron, LeBron James is like, you know, childhood friend, right? So um, it, there really has been a lot of change in the, in the power dynamics, even in the last two decades in the NBA. And that's why I think if you're a GM or you're a lead decision maker, you have two choices. You can try to take the Jerry Krause approach and be old school and do it the way that you were taught. And if a, if a player is a malcontent, you just trade them and get rid of them. Or uh, you could try to have a newer school approach where you cater to the guys uh, bring in their buddies, maybe even hire their high school coach as an assistant. Um, you know, and, and you see that kind of stuff now in the NBA all the time. So it's a, it's a delicate balance, but I think the, the best GMs do both. I come from the startup world where I have a seven person team and everyone has equity in the company. And you look at what someone like LeBron James has done for the valuation of the Cleveland Cavaliers franchise, even though he's no longer playing for them. And I if I were representing the players, you know, I would just come in hard with, you know, I need stock in this organization to play on it. And I, I think the idea that someone like LeBron can triple the value of Cleveland, go to Miami, double the value of their franchise, and then come to LA and make the most valuable franchise more valuable. And at the end of the day, he walks away and his only equity stake is in the Liverpool soccer team that like doesn't seem like a very, good incentive structure for the star players you know it's a it's been a real issue i think during the collective bargaining agreement and negotiations between the players union and the league because the players get it right and the owners have always loved to say oh we're losing money because salaries have gotten so high and um you know the players are like you're not losing money i mean the the value that you're gaining here is in your sale price of your organizations which in some yep. cases have tripled or quadrupled over the last 10 years the problem is the players don't share in that particular aspect of the value. And pretty much all you can do is have a handshake wink, wink deal of like, Hey, cut me in as an owner, you know, after I retire, I mean, there, there's no way to kind of directly compensate the players, you know, for that aspect, but it's fascinating because a lot of the very best players will tell you that their post NBA playing goal is to own a team just like Michael Jordan has, right? LeBron wants to own a team. Kevin Durant said he wants to own a team and a number of other players have said that. 
So they're getting that message. They're just realizing that it might have to be a later stage of their career. Yeah. And it's, you know, two guys, if all their cards fall right, you know, I know Grant Hill made hundreds of millions and has been trying to get into ownership and it's just very hard. You know, it's, there's 30 guys that have it. There's 30 gatekeepers. Um, uh, it's, it would just, yeah. It, it, like on my end, it's like literally every employee, every single day they go to work, they're collecting more stock and they know how much they're collecting over time. And the longer they work with me, the more they have. And I really like the purity of that relationship of just like, Hey, I know you can increase the value of my company and you should have some ownership in it. Uh, so I guess, um, to get to my last question, um, you know, historically, basically it's been, you have your MBA salary and then you do testimonials. And so the larger players, you know, get the Nike custom seat sneakers, the lower level will be a Nike athlete and occasionally appear in things. And then they'll do their local commercials. And now um, players have been making more of a push into ownership and, you know, I used to live in San Francisco and seeing the venture capitalist companies, you know, with uh, uh, Steph Curry, Andre Godala, you know, kind of getting more into ownership and then being the testimonial. So when they increase the value of the company, they capture it. But as a whole, you know, they're still very reliant on selling sneakers. So I was wondering if you could share kind of what athletes are doing a good job of making money off the court and how you think over the next five or 10 years, NBA athletes should better their own business in terms of, you know, diversifying their income streams beyond just what they make on the court. Yeah. I mean, the sneakers are definitely like kind of the center, you know, tentpole thing. It's like the first thing you do when you sign your NBA, uh, you get drafted, you know, you sign your contract, your rookie contract, and then you sign your sneaker deal. It's just like a rite of passage for the biggest stars. And um, I think that goes all the way back to just Jordan's popularity in the early eighties of kind of getting that ball really rolling on a, in a big way. I think the modern players, you know, their best uh, success stories have actually come in tech and media. It hasn't been necessarily selling some other product. A lot of guys are into fashion, but you're not really seeing like an NBA player as the face of Louis Vuitton or like the face yeah. of Dior, right? Like that, that really hasn't gone that, to that direction because I don't think the average consumers of those products, even if NBA guys really authentically enjoy uh, those brands, I'm not sure that that's pulling in or increasing Dior's market share in any meaningful way or really appealing to, uh, you know, those types of consumers. So the fashion stuff, I don't know if that's really been as lucrative, but the tech and the media stuff has really taken off. I mean, the idea that you can do uh, documentaries that will be watched by a lot of people that you could sell to Netflix um, that you can just basically provide the upfront money on and recoup the money, uh, you know, the profits after the fact has been a very popular model. LeBron James has been deep in that with the uninterrupted company. Kevin Durant has had partnerships with Showtime and ESPN for either athlete generated content or just athlete funded content. And I think the guys like the influence. I mean, just like politicians, they yeah. love to be able to tell their own story and they don't want pushback from independent media. And so, you know, for a lot of times fans just want the access. And if the players are the ones providing the access, um, then they're fine with it. They don't care necessarily if it's a completely balanced story, as long as it's, uh, you know, it, it takes some places they haven't been before. And on the tech side, you mentioned it. I mean, the VC stuff has really taken off for NBA players, Kevin Durant, Andre Iguodala, a bunch of the Golden State Warriors. I mean, that was sort of a central part of the Warriors pitch to players is like, look, you're going to be coming here and playing in front of the richest people in the country regularly who are going to be, you know, shelling out crazy amounts of money 
to sit courtside at the brand new Chase Center uh, in San Francisco, uh, those relationships are going to open doors for you off the court. And I think, you know, a guy like Kevin Durant, I mean, just think about it, going from Oklahoma City to San Francisco, and now he's, he's relocated to New York. I mean, that's a, a complete game changer from a proximity standpoint uh, to, to wealth and, and being able to expand your investment. So I think for the most part, uh, NBA superstar level guys who have an interest in off-court stuff, they're no longer throwing their money away on like a restaurant that's named after them that may, you know, fail or succeed. Uh, they're getting much more sophisticated financial advice. They have sort of grander plans, especially within the media and tech space. Uh, and they're, you know, empowered to kind of pursue them as well. Hmm. Yeah, it's the, the media is tempting. I, I had a meeting uh, this week with a venture capitalist and he asked very earnest about it. And it was just like, why do people with power love the media? Like, why do they keep investing? I mean, you, I mean, you work for the Washington Post, you know, owned by Jeff Bezos, um, it is like whatever the attraction is, it's pretty universal as you gain, you know, more attention and fame, you want your media to be run better and you want it to make you more money. Um, and, and the, the, the venture side of it, you know, they're all kind of longer plays that these guys are doing. And we don't know if the deals that they get Curry Durant, they get access to deals, you know, that we don't hear about until they're already done. You know, and that is something that it's very hard to quantify. But, but I guess, um, you know, in terms of some more of these edge cases, like how, how else are you seeing athletes make money in terms of like, because there's their own clothing brands. Um, and then there's like J.R. Smith tattooing Supreme on his leg, <laughs> trying to get a last NBA contract. And who knows what type of arrangement that was. I remember when that, I saw that one. And then the follow-up quote was like J.R. Smith saying like, no, we don't have a business relationship. I just really like Supreme. Right. No, I, I mean, that's another, it goes back to the customi customization idea. Everybody wanted to buy Air Jordans when they were a kid, right? But now if you're an NBA player, you don't have to be on Jordan's level to have your own quote unquote signature brand. You can find some company out there, even if it's just like a drop shipping company that just, you know, allows you to put your logo on a, a t-shirt that, you know, you can have your own brand, right? I think you know, one player that we've talked about previously is like Fred Van Vliet. I mean, he's a really nice player, uh, not an all-star, you know, key cog of a championship team, but he's got his own website where, you know, he's just like a startup, you know, just like his own entrepreneur. He can sell his own t-shirts, jackets, um, everything else. And that goes for not just players, but coaches now too. I mean, I got a real chuckle when the Raptors coach, Nick Nurse, who's only been an NBA coach for two years. And he's, you know, traveled throughout all the minor leagues coaching all the way, you know, over in the United Kingdom. You, know, you got to start in Iowa. I mean, this guy's kind of an off the beaten path type character. And he shows up at the NBA finals press conferences with the hat with his initials on them. And it's his own customized Nike hat with, with NN. And I'm just thinking, would Phil Jackson, you know, the Michael Jordan's coach 20 years ago, ever have like a Zen master t-shirt that he's trying to like sell on the website, you know, for money. I mean, uh, it, it goes back to this customization idea. Everybody's a brand. I think social media is a huge uh, part of that as well. I mean, you can sell your stuff on Instagram, you know, with one click now. It, it's that straightforward. And I'll be honest, man, I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone. I've got a subscription podcast. And, you know, ultimately, like, we're going to be selling T-shirts here pretty soon. I'm probably not going to be selling as many T-shirts as Fred Van Vliet. But, you know, uh, revenue is revenue. And uh, I think ultimately, like, if you are able to cultivate a, a, a network 
of diehard fans and you're able to regularly connect with them, whether it's, you know, through social media um, or through newsletters or however other, you know, else people, you know, are, are regularly uh, connecting with their fans, that is a potential profit source. And I think players are aware of that. So how is uh, the subscription base for the greatest of all talk coming along? It's been great. Look, in our first week, uh, actually our first 72 hours, we hit my six-month goal for subscribers. I didn't know really what to expect coming in, so I guess I had pretty conservative estimates. What's fascinating about the podcast space right now is that people's listening habits are changing, at least we've seen this, where you don't get the same immediate rush of a listen you know, as soon as a podcast goes up because people aren't pressed for time in the same way they were when they had a daily commute or when they had their normal routine so that people may be getting to the podcast two or three days later, but we're still seeing, you know, pretty strong listener numbers across the board. Um, and the subscription side has wound up being a real benefit for us because advertising, you know, podcast advertising has taken a real hit, you know, a lot of the, especially in the sports space, because a lot of the advertisers are sports related companies, ticket companies, you know, otherwise kind of tangential to the actual games. And right now there's no games. So for us, it's been actually a stabilizing factor to rely on subscription revenue as a, compared to uh, you know, uh, advertising revenue. And the same thing is played out in newspapers as well. I mean, you know, the Post is one example, but we have a very large subscriber base. Um, other newspapers do. And if your newspaper is largely funded by advertising and all your advertisers are restaurants and other events that no longer can um, you know, host any events, uh, they're not going to be advertising, and that's going to have a direct impact on the paper's financial uh, position. And um, while I have you here, I have to ask you about Zion Williamson. You know, so this year, um, basically, I was a little slow on watching games early in the year. And when Zion came back, I was basically just recording each game. I would wake up, um, you know, the next morning, kind of go through my routine, do some work. And then that kind of first break of the day, I'm basically starting fourth quarter of Pelicans versus whoever they were playing. And, uh, you know, there's really just never been a player like him. And as we see LeBron continue to just defy aging, which we know he can't do forever. He just can't, you know, we're taking it for granted that, you know, this will just keep going. And, uh, I don't know. I guess what I really have to say is like in your career, um, how in this stardom that he has, you know, he got it from Instagram. He didn't get it from Instagram, but Instagram became the reflection of it coming into college with millions of followers, like, and you got to spend some time with him. Uh, you know, is the league already in his hands? And like, <laughs> is this, you know, the new athlete that we're like going to be following? I think you hit it on the head. I mean, if LeBron is the athlete of Twitter, Zion is going to be the NBA athlete of Instagram. And so it's not his league completely yet, but he's had a phenomenon type impact that rarely comes across. I mean, he's had, he's been a bigger deal as a rookie than Anthony Davis was than Kevin Durant was. And remember Zion was injured for half the season. So his impact could have been even greater, especially from a viewership, viewership standpoint, um, had he not gotten hurt. You know, I jokingly like to refer to him as my large adult son, you know, that Twitter meme. Um, I mean, that's the level of investment personally that I have in him. I love how you've structured your day around watching his games <laughs> because I was structuring my travel schedule around going to his games. Like I had to make sure, pull out every stop. And unfortunately, because there's some family reasons, I had to take like four different flights to get to Zion's debut. 
And I'm sure you saw the game. I mean, his, his second yeah. half explosion with all the, the three-pointers and everything else, it was the single most electric moment of the entire season. And coincidentally, the last basketball game that I attended before the shutdown was just Zion happening to play a game in Minnesota. So the last player that I've interviewed in person was Zion. Uh, and so it just kind of tells you, like, he's definitely the player of my season. Um, now, in terms of where this goes for him, uh, the sky's the limit. I mean, he's a fascinating player. Uh, he's got a combination of size, strength, quickness, intelligence, which gets underrated, commitment to his team, which definitely gets underrated, but then also just pure power and explosion that we just have never seen. And so uh, he's coming along at a time where his weaknesses, which are shooting, um, you know, and I would say, you know, handling isn't necessarily his you know, ball handling isn't necessarily his biggest strength. Those two things are very prized. So he's at once kind of like the face of the NBA online, but he's also zagging a little bit towards what current trends are. So we're going to have to see which gives, right? Does he force the NBA to kind of change the way the game is played into his mold, or does he have to adapt, or does he get held back by the way the actual NBA is happening right now? I guess the best way to put it is that Zion is like the ultimate disruptor. You know, and I know everyone throws that term around. But that's sort of what he is. I mean, he's forcing everyone to stop and take notice and rethink all their assumptions about, you know, what basketball is, which to me, that's why he's so fascinating. That's why I can't take my eyes off him. And I imagine that's why you've kind of scheduled your days around the morning Zion. Yeah, my one of my favorite things is like he can continue to shoot almost 60% while getting blocked basically more than anybody. So he's like reached this point where it's like, hey, I'm giving up six inches on whoever's guarding me, but I'm bigger, faster, I'm stronger, and I can move them. If I move them, I lay it in. If I don't, they block it, and I usually get the rebound. I don't get the rebound, you get it sometimes. So it's like this idea that, like, instead of thinking of a shot as something that you want to make, you know, you want to make 40% of your threes or 50% of your twos, it's like, what is the likelihood from the moment I catch the ball that we get points? You know, so, like, I'm it's very exciting to watch him he he just really attacks the rim like no one I've ever seen no it's a great point like most usually a shot is a discrete act and I think for Zion it's a process right like the first shot might not he's not trying to end the whole attack with that first (laughs) shot it's almost like a parry right like he's just trying to like soften up the defense in a way it's different I mean and that's the, the great ones and this goes for Jordan LeBron and you know I don't want to put Zion into that category yet but he's getting there but the great ones do it their own way they, they just throw everything else out the window. You mentioned the last dance. One of my favorite moments is after Jordan has 63 points against the Boston Celtics, and he's 22 years old, and they go to Larry Bird, who always looks ghost white, but he looks particularly ghost white after just having Michael Jordan score 63 points on him in a playoff game. And he says, I've never seen anyone play the sport like this before or since. You can mention everyone, and I've never seen someone like that. And I think – it's so rare that you get somebody it's just completely unique and different. And that's the magic of Zion. That's the magnetism of Zion. Um, so la- last question, uh, Zion texts you and he says, Hey Ben, I- I've been listening to your podcast and I'm really looking for some business advice about how to shape uh, my narrative arc and how to make more money. Uh, what should I do? What do you say? Well, First of all, he's got great advisors. I think that he's come out of the gate very strong. He signed a good deal with the Jordan brand sneakers and they've, they've positioned him front and center. They had him everywhere at all-star weekend. And that's exactly kind of what you want. So he, he nailed the big one. I think he's also got deals with maybe Mercedes Benz and a couple others. 
um, you know, pretty heavy hitters. And so uh, the marketability side, he's gotten good advice. Now, it was a little bit of a hiccup because when he was in college, he had somebody trying to sue him saying that it was his agent and he had some relationship with the family. So hopefully that drama is behind him. Uh, but what I would encourage him to do is you don't have to rush it, but find the voice. And he, he's been very uh, careful so far in terms of what he says. He sticks to the, the, the script. Um, he's not trying to necessarily be controversial anyway. It's a lot of ah shucks, team first stuff. And I think that that's authentic to him because he is uh, he's a really nice kid. You know, he's a big brother. He's got this, you know, really adorable younger brother. And so he's, he's not making any missteps, but I do think he's being a little bit cautious. And so once he gets to year three or four, I want to see just kind of the blossoming effect in terms of like, make sure that your sneaker commercials uh, put forward who you are as a person and not just your dunking ability. Because um, as we've seen with guys like LeBron, that can be such a powerful way to connect with people. The social justice stuff for LeBron has become such a big deal. And that's something that he really tapped in to once he became a father and once he was trying to raise his kids and, and get them into schools. And that became kind of a focus for him. So to me, it's just all about, you know, showing your true personality, not, not being cautious on the microphone. And uh, you want to take that stuff slow. You don't want to, you know, there's always going to be downsides to being quote unquote too honest. I don't think you want to go the Charles Barkley route where you're telling people you're not a role model and everybody can, you know, uh, you know, bleep off and all that kind of stuff. But I think for Zion, there's a real competitive edge to how he plays. Um, and there's a sweetness to him off the court. And I just want to make sure both those sides come through in his future marketing efforts. I think they will. Uh, hopefully the defense will come too. That would be helpful. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. I mean, the number one piece of advice is like, okay, figure out how you can play center defensively because then the whole game is going to get a lot easier for you and your teammates and you're going to win a lot of games. And right now he's not there yet. So that's uh, I like your coaching strategy for sure. <laughs> Cool, Ben. Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to the tech community here at Hacker Noon, and we got a, a little bit into hoops, which I obviously wanted to do. And if you're ever uh, hiking the state parks in this area, you know, uh, you should stop by and play some basketball. Man, I love to. It's, it's been on my uh, bucket list for a while. I've never done Rocky Mountain. Um, I got down to Mesa Verde um, last summer for a day, which was awesome. But uh, yeah, consider yourself lucky and consider me jealous for your, for your, uh, proximity to the outdoors yeah the the stretch of highway basically from vale to glenwood springs it like goes through the mountains and it's like a engineering like triumph you know <laughs> and it weaves along the river and through the mountains uh yeah it's a, it's a great it's driving and hiking here is really great i love it well eventually i'll be able to go outside again and when i do you'll be on my list <laughs> All right, Ben. Uh, enjoy the rest of the day. Read Ben on the Washington Post. Follow him on Instagram, Ben.Golliver. Uh, yeah, plug his stuff. What, you got anything else coming up? No, greatestofalltalk.com, but otherwise you did great. Uh, usually I, I get made fun of my, my, for my self-promotion, so you did the heavy lifting for me. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later, Ben. All right. Take care.